Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined by John Rick MacArthur, who is publisher of Harper's Magazine, and we're going to discuss the early days of the Donald Trump transition and what's next for the Democratic Party. So, Rick, as someone, I think it's fair to say, who comes from the authentic American left, how scared are you by a Trump presidency and why? Well, you see, I started out, as readers in The Spectator may recall, saying I wasn't afraid of Trump, sort of brazenly acting indifferent. And it was Ralph Nader, of all people, who told me to get straight and take him seriously, that he was dangerous. And the implication was also that he could win. And so to think of him as a figure of fun and to ridicule him at this point seems uh, maybe dangerous. Yeah. So, but, but the main thing that I think about Trump is that he's unstable. He's mentally unstable. And that if he takes something the wrong way, say a foreign leader makes a joke or criticizes him or postures for his constituency or her constituency, he's going to take it personally and overreact. Now, there may be reserves of good judgment and moderation and and common sense in Trump that we've yet to see, but it seems unlikely that he's going to become a fully developed, mature man, as some people have suggested to me, simply because he's occupying the White House. In fact, I even doubt that he's going to live in the White House. Somehow, uh, you, you know that he spent very little time on the campaign trail. In other, in other words, he never, he, if he could possibly avoid it, he didn't spend the night away from home, away from New York. He would fly back at all hours of the night from Iowa, as I recall, to avoid spending the night in motels. One wonders if he's e- even going to want to live in the White House. Yes. I mean, how sure can we be that he is mentally unstable? I mean, perhaps it's a sort of vain hope, but there's quite a lot of people think that the, you know, ostentatious anger and the, uh, you know, wild erratic tweeting, that was all campaign tactics, really. And behind the the veneer of an idiot is a calm operator. Well, it's possible because uh, in business, of course, uh, and certainly in real estate, there's a great deal of play acting. I know uh, from personal experience and from my own grandfather that Uh, Real estate people will play uh, hard guy, soft guy, uh, but mainly hard guy in order to to gain concessions from people who aren't as bold as they are. Yes. But politics is different. It's not just making a deal over, you know, am I going to pay 10 million or 9 million? It's am I going to pass legislation that will affect millions of people in, in this country and maybe millions more around the world? And there's a tremendous amount of, you know, politicians are different from you and me. Mm. They have, uh, as as Walter Karp used to say, they are bolder uh, (laughs) than than, than you and I. And so they have more at stake in terms of ego and vanity. So Trump may find that the competition in Washington is a little heavier than uh, New York real estate. And he may have a much harder time negotiating with Paul Ryan, for example. Paul Ryan hates Trump clearly wished fervently for Hillary Clinton's election, uh, did everything he could uh, short of formally disendorsing Trump uh, to prevent him from winning. Now he's stuck with him. And to some extent, Trump is stuck with Ryan. And they have two different agendas. Uh, uh, Ryan is a very right-wing Hayek 
uh, Milton Friedman adherent who wants, if he can, to dismantle the New Deal and the Great Society of uh, of, uh, Lyndon John- of Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. And this is where I, I said in my piece online in, uh, in the Spectator Coffee House uh, that it, this is not like Brexit. Uh, <laughs> Brexit had articulate spokesmen. Nobody was saying let's let's take advantage of Brexit by by killing the National Health Service or dismantling the welfare state. Uh, as far as I know, nobody was saying let's use this as a pretext for destroying the social safety net, such as it is in in the United Kingdom. Ryan most certainly is going to try to use Trump's election as a pretext, as an opening to attack the social safety net. And the question is whether Trump will permit it. Uh, whether he'll uh, uh, disagree, whether he'll agree, whether there there will I think there will be horse trading. Yes, where Ryan says, "Okay, we'll let you we'll let you look good. We'll give you this photo op in exchange for that welfare cut." Yes, you don't think that Ryan is such a toady to use I think probably more of an English word that he'll just suck up to Trump whatever. I mean, certainly while Trump was running, he he was very much hedging his bets. So, you know, sometimes coming out supporting Trump, sometimes saying, "Oh no, I find him off- offensive, too appalling." You don't think. Trump will be able to, if they have legitimate differences on economics, Trump will be able to bulldoze Ryan. Well, you can see hints of it right now if you read uh, the Breitbart blog, yeah. blog, which I do on a regular basis. It's your, it's your window, all of you spectator readers, into the new Trump administration. It's, it's, it's Trump Pravda. It's Trump. If Trump were the leader of the of the Communist Party, Breitbart would be his Pravda. Yeah. And so it, it's the avant garde of Trumpism, which which doesn't mean that Trump will follow through on all of Pravda's or Breitbart's suggestions. But you can see that Breitbart is right now gunning for Ryan. Yeah. They're accentuating the differences, the ideological differences, or if you could call them that. The, the policy differences between Trump and uh, Ryan. For example, Trump is now saying uh, broadly he'd like to do massive public works. And the Democrats, of course, are obliged to say, well, yeah, we're for massive public works and we'll try to help him do it. And Ryan, ideologically, is horrified by this notion. He's, a, he's an anti-deficit, mm. anti-public uh, spending person. And so they're going to presumably cl- uh, clash on this. But if you're, you're, what you're suggesting is true, is correct, that Ryan is such a toady, and he may be, uh, that he'll do whatever it takes to survive. And to survive, he's going to have to collaborate with Trump uh, more than, than fight him. Mm. Then maybe there will be harmony <laughs> between Trump and Ryan. On, on, I'm just not sure. McConnell, Mitch, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is a different kettle of fish. He's more of a traditional Republican conservative, and he's a he, he is like Ryan. He's a party man, but he's also, at least so far, talks a lot about the the traditions and protocols of the Senate. Yeah. And if you're a senator who takes themselves seriously, you understand your constitutional function, your role as checking executive power. Yeah. And and they take this very seriously. Eugene McCarthy, when he took on when he ran for president against Lyndon Johnson, he told me this. He said, I was always very careful to argue my candidacy on the grounds that this was in part an attempt to restore Senate prerogative against a reckless executive making war in Vietnam without permission, without formal congressional permission. So McConnell, he may he may slow Trump up on uh, on the grounds of 
Senate constitutional duty. But right now, it's very hard to know what he's what he's going to do, because it's like a court forming. It's not like a cabinet forming. People are going to this bizarre building on Fifth Avenue, which looks like a faux Versailles, and they're paying for it. And it's astonishing to me that I haven't yet seen a very funny column attacking Trump on aesthetic grounds. I mean, I haven't written it either. I, I will write it if you want me to. But <laughs> but the idea that you would go to this faux Versailles on the top floor of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue and, and actually uh, uh, genuflect in front of the new uh, Sun King is absolutely astonishing. And I don't see anybody pointing this out. The lump, the, the, the poor white working class that revolted against the Democratic Party, and this is where I, I, I get worried. I don't think they bargained necessarily for a guy uh, who wanted to live in a palace. Mm. I mean, they said Trump's, Trump's one of us because he says what he thinks and he's not afraid to be politically incorrect. But if they look at him closely and see the way he lives and the way he treats people, they may uh, develop a different interpretation of him. And they may be very disappointed. Now, the, the, the one thing that uh, I approve of with Trump, or one of the things I, I approved of broadly, was his critique of the free, free trade deals, which are not free trade deals. They're investment agreements with Mexico and China that guaranteed industrial jobs would, uh, would be outsourced to, to Mexico and, and China. There was nothing stopping people from going to China and Mexico before. But NAFTA and PNTR, Permanent Normal Trading Relations with China, codified it and, act, and acted and still act as expropriation insurance, insurance against expropriation and harassment by the Mexican government or the Chinese government. If Trump actually goes after NAFTA, he's going to have a big fight with Ryan and McConnell, who think NAFTA and, and PNTR are terrific because they're big business constituencies, love cheap labor and love operating tax-free and environmental regulation-free in those countries. So the other area Trump could get in trouble with them is on illegal immigration. American business loves illegal immigration. They've got, it, it, it enlarges the labor pool immensely. You get to hire people for four bucks an hour without paying them any benefits. And if they complain, you, you turn them into the Immigration natural, Naturalization Service and have them deported. So they think illegal immigration is terrific. And, and Trump has made it, made it his one of his big campaign pledges uh, to do something about it. As a politician, Trump has always been quite consistent. And even just in his political statements before he was a politician, Trump has always been quite consistent on his criticism of NAFTA and immigration and the unfair effect it has on yes. American workers. As a businessman, of course, he's, he's exploited it to his own advantage. But what, what the difference between Trump's critique and Bernie Sanders' critique, let's say, is that Sanders is coming at it from a conventional left-wing point of view. Mm. He understands that cheap labor is being exploited at the expense of higher paid labor in the United States. And it's a bad deal for both sides. Trump keeps saying those lousy Mexicans taking advantage of us, which is absurd. We're taking advantage of the Mexicans, not the other way around. Yeah. We're going to punish the Mexicans for, for those sneaky bastards for ripping us off. It's exactly the contrary. So you wonder whether or not Trump really understands what he's saying or why he's saying it. 
And in your uh, excellent piece, which we published today, you talk about the grotesques uh, who are sort of part of this Trump court. And, and these are the sort of old Republican stalwarts who have, were very early into being loyal to Trump. Giuliani, Newt Gingrich, to name two. They haven't yet been given posts. They're, they're, they're being uh, they're on tenor hooks waiting to see if I, I, we got to come up with a better title than the Sun King. Yeah, let's call him. I don't know. The Guilt King. Well, the guilt king is going to is going to um, bestow favors on them, and I think yeah. Trump, again, like a businessman, a, a good, uh, savage uh, New York real estate guy, likes to likes to keep people waiting. It's a it's a conventional real estate tactic uh, to make somebody fly a long distance to meet with you to close a deal and then not show up. This happens all the time in New York real estate. You make them wait, and they get so frustrated that by the time the meeting finally takes place, they say, oh, all right, I'll cut my price, you know, 10 percent or I'll raise depending on the if you're buying or selling. So he's making everybody wait, everybody speculate, everybody wonder what's going to happen. But I do think Giuliani and um, Gingrich will get jobs. It's a question how how good they're going to be. Chris Christie, who I thought would get something, I think he'll still get something. But again, in in court politics, it turns out that and I, I was unaware of this, that Jared Kushner, uh, another real estate billionaire who's the um, son-in-law of Trump. Yes, and apparently the brains behind a lot of the right. the decisions. Yeah, His father was sent away to jail by Christie when Christie was a U.S. attorney in New Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a much bigger mistake than Bridgegate for Christie. Right. And, in, and in, <laughs> you know, it's in, in 16th century France. Well, it's you know, it would have been it would have been a fatal mistake. Uh, Christie, <laughs> Chris, Christie will survive. But I do think Trump will probably still give him offer him some lesser uh, job. But this is, again, goes to the heart of the question is Trump. Does Trump have real reform instincts anywhere in him? Mm. And if he does, uh, then you would expect him not to to uh, to uh, appoint retreads, pathetic retreads from um, from past administrations or uh, past uh, uh, political glory. I mean, Gingrich, it's a brilliant piece of hypocrisy or an amazing piece of hypocrisy. Gingrich was Bill Clinton's right hand man in passing NAFTA in 1993. As I say in my piece, he couldn't. Uh, NAFTA could not have passed without the help of Newt Gingrich. He was a stalwart, essential ally to Bill Clinton in this effort to to pass NAFTA and move uh, the Democratic Party to the right. Clinton was doing it for tactical political reasons. Gingrich was doing it for ideological reasons. But they worked very well together. So, uh, is Trump even aware that Gingrich was? Clinton's ally on NAFTA? I mean, I, I don't think so, or I don't know. And what about for the future of the Democratic Party? I, I think, you know, t- some people feel this could be a great moment of rebirth and that uh, the Sanders constituency will come to the fore. How optimistic are you about the future of the Democrats? Well, at first I was optimistic. And then a friend of mine who grew up in Democratic Party politics, he's the nephew of uh, the late Senator Patrick Moynihan, said, why do you think the Clintons are going away? Because many people wrote me after the election saying, yes, this is a catastrophe, it's awful, but at least we're rid of the Clintons. And my friend uh, said, not so fast. Uh, She won the popular vote. She's only 69. After all, Bernie Sanders ran for president in 74. They're terminally ambitious, the two of them. They can't sit still. 
they can't give up the prerogatives of power and they certainly are devoured by ambition. Mm. Who's to say Hillary Clinton won't try to make a comeback uh, and say, you know, run again? This would be a, a, a real catastrophe for the Democratic Party, in my opinion. The better scenario is that Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren and Dick Durbin and some of the other, Sherrod Brown, who had an op-ed piece in the New York Times today, that they pull together and form a unified, coherent opposition to the Republicans. And that this would be a healthy thing for American democracy. All along, I've been saying that this is going to be Trump's presidency is going to be a test for the Constitution like we've never seen before. Test for separation of powers and also a test to see if 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 the Democratic opposition uh, can can behave as a real opposition. Since, as you know, we have both houses are controlled by the Republicans and the White House is controlled at least nominally by a Republican. Mm. So I'm hoping and there is some some evidence that they're that they're forming, they're getting organized to fight and to come up with a coherent policy alternative. However, there's again, as I said at the outset, there's this contradiction that Trump says he wants to do massive public works spending. He says he wants to dismantle NAFTA. He says he wants to have a more modest, less aggressive uh, foreign policy. These are things that the liberal Democrats, uh, in principle, approve of. So Trump could split the Democratic Party. Yes, and particularly if, as a lot of people expect, there will be huge tax cuts combined with a huge stimulus spending on infrastructure and things like that, and the economy may surge in the next few years. In fact, Paul Krugman, who's a Trump hater of the first order, said, don't be surprised if things get better in the first year or two or seem to get better before the big crash because he's he's going to do a lot of pump prime priming spend a lot of money uh, cut taxes and there's going to be a, an instant jolt to the economy of course the differences between the, the, the spread between the rich and the poor is going to increase the inequalities are going to increase but initially there might be a a, a kind of a, a rosy glow and uh, on the economy that makes everybody feel better. Hard to say. Again, he's so incoherent, Trump. He's so he's so seat of the pants and so angry. He's fundamentally an angry person that it could all blow up. I mean, there is there is a rumor circulating that they're going to somebody's going to uh, file an impeachment, try to try to bring an impeachment action against him at the first possible instance. Now, I don't know how they can pull this off because the Democrats don't have. Uh, majorities. There, there's also this uh, possibility, it's a distant possibility of him losing the lawsuit against him uh, over Trump University defrauding all its students. Uh, but the judge just ordered the trial to to, to proceed in, in California. And it could be a great embarrassment for him. Plus, he's got all these conflicts of interest with his businesses. He's not promising to put anything in a blind trust. He's just saying, I'm going to turn it over to my kids. <laughs> which is a, yeah. which is not exactly the the conventionally ethical thing to do when you become president of the United States. Uh, don't worry, I'll have my kids run the business and I'll keep it at arm's length. <laughs> so, 
I, I shouldn't be laughing, but 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 these are the, these are some of the things that are going on right now. Just lastly, let's talk about foreign policy. You, you mentioned the anger thing with Donald Trump, and a lot of people think he will be uh, erratic on foreign policy. But of course, a lot of his success running for the Republican nomination was running against the Bush era war party, if you like, within the Republican right. party. Uh, he's running again. He ran against what we would call the Washington consensus, which is very bipartisan. It's Bush and Clinton. Let's again, never forget that yeah. Hillary Clinton voted for the invasion of Iraq. And she also sponsored, helped sponsor the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, which was a catastrophic mistake. Ironically, the French opposed the invasion of Iraq and supported the overthrow of, of Gaddafi. Anyway, she was wrong on both, both counts. And I think Trump scored real points in the, de- in the debate when he ridiculed her for those positions. Now, on the other side of the ledger is his insistence that he knows how to beat ISIS. I pointed this out in an earlier piece of The Spectator that one of the more bizarre moments in their first debate was when they, or they agreed actually on how to how they should fight ISIS online. Trump said we, really, we really, yeah. they're they're eating our lunch. They're they're making fools of us online. And and Clinton said yes, we've got to definitely fight back against ISIS online. Now, Obama has been fighting terrorism, quote unquote, with drones, uh, remote controlled drones, and hasn't helped in the least. He's now got uh, hundreds and hundreds of advisors which, who are really soldiers on the ground in Iraq fighting alongside the, the Iraqi uh, army, such as it is. Is Trump simply going to pull the plug on all that? If he does, it will engender foreign policy debate in the United States like you have not seen uh, since before World War II, because we've had a consensus really here since World War II. And it, it's significant because, again, as you, you may remember, whole cohort of right-wing, pro-military, pro, pro-adventurist Republicans signed a petition before the election saying, never Trump, Trump cannot become president, we'll, we'll fight him, to the, we'll, we'll oppose him to the death. What are these people going to do if Trump actually pulls the plug on American, what, what has become conventional, routine American intervention in the Middle East. Now, again, he doesn't have a Secretary of State. We don't know who's going to be advising him. Uh, but these are all uh, areas of potential disagreement and debate, which would certainly enliven things. Things might turn out badly, but because he's so incoherent and so inconsistent. But we could at least see a debate, a healthy debate. And I suppose uh, he's already appointed General Michael Flynn as his national security advisor, who's very hawkish and a sort of Fox News foreign policy view of the world. Yes. And, and I my fundamental belief is that Trump is insincere about everything he says. He doesn't really mean to help the working class. He doesn't really mean to dial back American uh, aggressiveness overseas, that he's a salesman first and foremost. And he and he got the idea that if I sell these various points, it might help me get ahead. It's going to help my brand. Now he's president and he's under he's going to be under tremendous pressure from all sides to maintain a consistent foreign policy or one that's consistent with American tradition since World War Two. He's also going to be under tremendous pressure from the right wing of his party not to abrogate, not to repeal uh, the trade agreements. So it's going to be a very, very uh, uh, interesting uh, few months here. 
Well, Rick, we should certainly talk to you again about it. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Uh, just a reminder that the Americano podcast is carrying on, even though the election is over, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes. Mm-hmm.